as we, the community of faith, join together in prayer. You who are our vision, may we see you more clearly this day so that if we believe, we will have the capacity to follow because you have shown yourself and empowered us through this time of worship. May worship be for us in this moment, a time of listening carefully to you and what you would say to us as individuals, as families, and as a people. This is our prayer in Christ. Amen. I thought the uh, passage from the fourth chapter of Acts that Nina read for us was rather direct, didn't you? And it felt like the response to last week's more direct sermon was... uh, a little more powerful for some reason. And it made me wonder if I should be like that priest and pastor who were standing by a road one afternoon with a large sign that said, the end is near. Stop and turn around before it's too late. A guy drove by in an expensive car, rolled down his window and said, leave me alone, you religious nuts. He sped around the corner and you heard a large splash priest turned to the pastor and said, do you think we should make the message more plain? Just say bridge out or something like that? (laughs) I do feel uh, compelled to speak plainly. I guess I've never felt more liberated to talk about money and giving uh, than I do today because I recognize now more than ever We're not talking about finances and fundraising here alone. We're not only talking about Highland's budget for 2013. We're talking about a matter that affects every one of us here, whether we're a member who will pledge or we're a visitor just passing through. For these are spiritual matters. These are life matters. It's at the core of who we are and how we will embody our deepest values. This is, I want to suggest, an invitation to generosity. To something that is countercultural and counterintuitive. Generosity grounded in God as our center. So that what we're known for, not in an egotistical way, but in terms of who we are, is shaped by the center of who we are, which is God revealed in Jesus. One of the things I do in my role as a pastor is I meet with family members after someone has died in order to prepare the funeral service. Occasionally I have to do it for a family where I didn't know the person who died. And so I'll say to them, tell me about your dad or your mom or tell me about your wife or your child. What what would they most want to be remembered for? And so I want to ask you this morning, if your family were in my office following your death, what would you hope they say? I have a feeling no one asked this of the man that we now know as the rich fool. 
in the context of the Bible and in the context of church, we portray uh, the rich fool in a certain way, but outside of church, outside of Bible, in a different context, the man that we refer to as a rich fool would be considered a hero, a leader, one of the civic uh, leaders of the community, perhaps a deacon of the church, maybe even chair of the finance committee. We would say, oh, there's a job creator. There's someone who knows how to handle money, and so we would place on them a high value But Jesus operated by another value system. For Jesus, this man wasn't a hero, but a fool. Because he kept all that he gained for himself. And here's the problem. The problem is that to be powerful and sensible, and admired in the world is to be a fool in the eyes of God. And to be powerful in the eyes of God is to be a fool in the eyes of the world. And the question for us today is, whose eyes matter to us? The world's eyes or God's eyes? Perhaps you would say with me, well, of course God's eyes matter more, but even if we decide to go with God, how do we do this really? How do we cultivate this heart of generosity? How do we, how do we, how do we get ourselves to a place where we can let go of things and power and money in order to serve the world and love God fully? I would love to think that simply becoming a Christian would automatically instill generosity in us, but that's unfortunately not how it works. Any more than putting on a new pair of running shoes instantly gets us into shape and makes us enjoy running, or signing up for a ballet class instantly gives us the skill and the strength to pirouette on point. It just doesn't happen that way. We still fight temptations. We still have low self-images that ironically call us to create a kind of self-centeredness and selfishness. We're still afraid that there won't be enough for me. And so like Ananias and Sapphira, we keep back more than we claim we keep back. And we live by the myth told again and again in the world we live in that it's all about us. It's all about us, whether we're talking about nations and the world's resources or whether we're talking about individuals and families and our personal incomes. We're told again and again, it's all about us. And I notice how these temptations mirror Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Turn the stones to bread. It's... There's not enough, and it's all about you. Jump from the temple and and make it be focused on you. Bow down and, and worship me. Compromise who you are, and all will be well. So what is it that will allow us to develop the kind of spiritual muscles and discipline to create this heart of Christian generosity? 
I want to suggest several things this morning. Nothing new, but things that you and I and many in this world find difficult to truly live into. Let's start with the basics. Centering our life and centering ourselves in God's love for us. To recognize that there's nothing we can achieve, nothing we can do, nothing we can create that will make God love us less or make God love us more. We are who we are, children of God. And every other message that we receive in this world tells us otherwise we come back again and again. It's why we're here this morning to reorient our lives into this primal message that God's love for us is central and unequivocal and unconditional. From this realization, we discover that life itself is a gift that's been given to us, that everything we have, everything that is, belongs to God. We said it at the beginning of this hour. As we read from the words of the psalmist, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it is the Lord's. John Ortberg wrote a book, the title of it is, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. You think of a board game, when the game's over, it all goes back in the box. When our lives are over, it all goes back in the box, six feet long by about Two and a half feet wide and deep. We brought nothing into this world. We take nothing from it. But while we're here, this life is a gift. I think new parents realize this. They hold that child. They realize life is a gift and I'm a steward. I get to be part of this for a season. But how quickly it's forgotten and how easily it's ignored. That this life is a gift. And that you and I were created in such a way that we are to give beyond ourselves. Beyond ourselves. It's not just about us. Someone said the phrase, God loves us, is a fragment. It's a half-truth. God loves us is true. But the other part of the story is God loves everyone else. And that we were placed in this world to share what we have and to share who we are and to see that all of God's children are recognized and celebrated. I I know that this is easier for some than for others. When we talk about this 2013 budget... It's easy to talk about money and what's the minimum I can give. I'm wanting us to think so much broader, so much more deeply, that it's not just just about the pledges we give, but it's about the character of the lives that we're being called to live out, that these pledges are but the first expression of. That we're called to give of ourselves. And this may mean more money, but it may mean more love. It may mean more grace or more forgiveness or more compassion. Gerald Mann, a pastor in Austin, had a 
local celebrity say to him one day, Oh, Reverend, all the church wants from me is my money. Gerald said to him, Cactus, the church just doesn't want your money. We want your life. We want your life. We want all that you have and are to be given into this work of love, not for the sake of the church, but for the sake of the reign of God in this world. That's why we encourage people to seriously consider the tithe, to seriously consider what it is that you give into the kingdom of God this day. It is for us a practice a discipline of giving our lives away. For some of you, you'll, you'll think, I don't have enough money. And others of you will think, I have too much money to do that. When I was in high school, I was a, a wrestler. One of the sports that was available to those of us who were uh, sort of uh, vertically challenged. And so... I was a less than average wrestler, but one weekend I was at a tournament and ran into a friend from another school. His name was Doug France, Bubba France. He later was a two-time pro bowler for the Los Angeles Rams. To say the least, he uh, wrestled in the heavyweight class. I sat next to him as we watched others wrestle, and I said, Man, if I was as big as you, I would be the state heavyweight wrestling champion. He looked over at me and said, really? Well, then why aren't you the state 132-pound class champion? (laughs) And I realized it's not about how much you have, but about what you do with what you have. Some of us don't think we have enough, and so we're hesitant to even start. There are some people who think they have too much and are hesitant to start. Peter Marshall was the chaplain of the United States Senate, rubbed shoulders with lots of wealthy people. One day he was talking with a man, a Christian man, who said, Reverend, it's, I'm embarrassed to say, but I used to tithe, but now I make a half a million dollars a year. I can't afford to tithe $50,000 a year. Marshall said, that is a problem. Why don't we pray together about it? They bowed together in prayer, and Marshall said, Lord, I ask that you reduce this man's salary (laughs) back to the place where he can afford to tithe again. It's about discipline. It's about taking what God has given us, a lot or a little, and doing what God invites us to do. It may sound hard, but the blessing is when you do it, you receive blessing upon blessing. Jesus said these words, do we believe them to be true? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Tom Eric said the way to accept God's love is to give away what you have, to throw aside your safety net and walk across the road to another way of living. 
oh, I, I can't do that. Can I? Do I believe that? Eric says, if you live to yourself, you stay where you are, and in the end, that place is barren. But if you give to others, you move toward the light. I'm not just talking about pledges and budgets. We're not just after your money. We're after your life. And then finally, to dream with God. We pray this prayer so glibly. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as in heaven. What if we could be part of that work of love, of the kingdom coming, of God's will being done? What if we, individually in Highland, what if we were called to take more risks in the work of love? What could happen? Richard Semler was a 59-year-old math teacher at Northern Virginia Community College. He taught calculus and algebra. He's one of those guys who could find the derivative of a polynomial, but he's the kind of guy who reduced his life to just the simplest of equations. He gave away everything he didn't need to live simply. 35 years old, he gave over half of his income to others. At this point in his life, he's given away $770,000. His goal is to give away a million dollars. He earns about $100,000 a year. And those who do this kind of analysis tell us that on average, someone who makes $100,000 a year gives away $2,000. Similar last year gave away $60,000. He gave $100,000 to Habitat for Humanity to build a house, but he don't, not only gives the money, he's there to build the house. He said, I could do things differently, but I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it this way because this way feels right and it feels good. He gives to a soup kitchen. He also go down, goes down every Monday and helps spoon up the soup. And then he stays afterwards and tutors people who are trying to work on their GEDs. He said it all started when he graduated from college on a scholarship and gave $25 back to his college in gratitude when he got his first job. He said that was the snowball that started rolling, and as it did, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Those who know him say he's the happiest person they know. What could God do? Imagine what we could do if we cultivated generous hearts in this community of faith, not just with our money, but with our lives, 
What could God do? What if instead of competing to have the most, we became a community that competed to give the most, to have the most generous hearts? Paul wrote to the Romans and said to them, love with a mutual affection and outdo one another in love and honor. What if we discovered it to be true? What Paul said to Timothy long ago, that this is the life that really is life. Do we believe it? Let's pray together. I will confess, O God, that I'm not sure which makes me more nervous, reading the story of Ananias and Sapphira or preaching a sermon about sacrificial giving. But I will trust that your spirit will guide and you will grow me and us to be the men and women and the boys and girls that you are calling us to be this day. Make us a people with generous hearts in celebration of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.